I think a lot of us like to believe that our actions are committed out of our own freedom, but like, let's be real. Everything we do is just because of the way others will perceive us, or at least how we'll perceive ourselves. Today's episode, Two-Way Mirror. Taking a look at how one looks at themselves, the world, and vice versa. First off, Naomi Azulai talks about her relationship with the early 2000s educational geography game, Stack the Country, and how it made her realize our education system's failure to teach her what the game did. Following that, Let's hear Ben Coolish dive into the misconception of growth hormones being seen as a way to cheat natural selection, and how his relationship to using the drug as a kid has evolved over the years. Lastly, we are going to take a look at Jack Ramsey's piece on procrastination, parents, potlucks, and persistent patients that have shaped his views of his work habits. I'm Ruel Jimenez, and this is Discourse. Here's Naomi Azuloy. When I got my first iPad... In the early 2010s, I had access to a variety of iconic games. I'm thinking Doodle Jump, Candy Crush, Minecraft, Angry Birds. That list slowly grew. They were time-consuming tasks, and I remember being massively competitive with my two sisters. At the same time, I was able to discover games that many people hadn't heard of, such as Elf Yourself, a game where you can film your own music videos while being in the body of an elf, and Traffic Rush, where you have to avoid hitting cars and trains into one another. The key difference, though, is that the second class of games was less competitive. Rather, it was more of a bonding experience. Overall, the one game in particular that took up the most of my time was an underrated educational game called Stack the Countries. In this fun, interactive game, you are presented with a geography question, such as, Blue Mosque is a landmark of which country? Below the question, four animated pictures of countries are displayed. Each country is designed with its outline on a map, filled in with bright colors, uniquely personified googly eyes and a mouth, and its name written below. From there, you have to guess a country to answer the question. Here, the correct answer is Turkey. You would then touch, drag, and drop the animated turkey onto a platform at the bottom of the screen to create the base of a tower. Essentially, this process repeats. A new question and four new countries. As it says in the name of the app, the objective is to stack the countries on top of one another to reach the finish line at the top of the screen. Since the countries are true to scale, you must be very careful to balance them correctly. Each time you reach the finish line, you receive a country, kind of like a trophy, that goes on a personalized map of the world. Despite the cheesy animation with stars exploding when the game first loads, a picture of a historic monument in the background, and a price of $3 on the App Store, I felt incredibly satisfied with myself. Leaving my world behind for another made me feel more connected with the members of my international family and friends, from England to Argentina to Switzerland, to Israel, to Spain. We had a mutual understanding of the physical distance between us and the water we had to cross in order to see each other. It's truly incredible that Stack the Countries made my love of learning grow in such meaningful ways. For one thing, the game solidified my belief that learning is not always a burden. It can be a blessing, too. According to the App Store, the game is an educational app for all ages that's actually fun to play. In addition, 
It was featured on the Today Show and received the Editor's Choice Award in the Children's Technology Review. Despite the game being hard for me and my sisters at first, my dad, being a foreigner, was actually able to play with ease. So what does this say about the United States' education system surrounding geography? After I started playing the game consistently, I felt inspired to imagine what it would be like to live in a foreign place. In the last few years, my environment started to feel comparatively uneventful. I wanted to travel, get out of quaint Larchmont, a pretty wealthy suburb in Westchester County, New York. I probably felt envious that my mom had done just that. My mom did not follow a typical college path. Not only did she transfer schools, but she transferred countries. After being discontent with two schools in New York and Michigan, she decided to study in an international program. At the age of 20, in 1990, she chose to study political science at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Israel, a place that was exciting and exhilarating for its diverse cultures, languages, histories, and religions. After my mom and dad met, my dad did the reverse trip, flying from Israel to come live in Larchmont in the mid-1990s. After serving in the Israeli Navy for three years, having the chance to live on his own and leave for a new country felt incredible. I think that hearing about my parents' experiences made me want to jump at the chance to get on a plane and visit new countries and talk to new people, even though I never did that since I had social anxiety. In my mom's own words, she didn't want to stop looking for a place that felt the best for her. In a way, Stack the Countries was an escape from my normal scenery. Different countries of the world were quite literally in my hands, and with these facts, I could transport myself there. Maybe for a minute, I could imagine that I wasn't playing a game, that I was staring at the beaches, skies, and tourist attractions of a new home. My parents weren't afraid of having to adapt to new cultures, traditions, and locations. In fact, they chased after it. I admire them for that. A study focused on international competitiveness and geography education from National Geographic tracked 18 to 24-year-olds' knowledge of geography in the United States compared to other countries in Europe and North America. Out of nine countries, the U.S., Canada, France, the U.K., Germany, Italy, Mexico, Japan, and Sweden, the U.S. came second to last in geographic knowledge. Compared to the U.S., numerous European nations such as Austria and Norway require students to take a geography course until they graduate high school. In my opinion, this reflects how these countries will prioritize students' education despite having negative or positive relations with another country. As you grow older, you might see a nation's decision in history in a different way than when you were younger. When you first start labeling parts of the map of the world, you learn the distinction between a country and a continent. There's a large difference between someone mistaking two countries that look similar and calling a continent like Africa a country. They're not the same thing. That's like calling a banana tree a banana. They're not interchangeable. Have you ever seen those videos on Jimmy Kimmel where people on the street go up to a map and name a country? It's hard to hear. Take a moment and listen to this. Can you name a 
country on this map. What? Just any country. Oh my, I don't know. How about this? Yeah, I don't know what that is. How about this? How about this? Texas. No, India. I don't know. Can you point to a country on this map? USSR. Uh, Russia now. Yes. Can you, can you point to it? No, that's China. To me, it's a little scary that people don't even know where they are on Earth, geographically. Like, we just exist and live in what we call our home. Nothing else to it. Yet, when someone tells me about a well-known country they've visited, I've noticed that people have a little more awareness of where they are. In my eyes, A well-known country is one that is a popular tourist destination, has a decently sized population, and is mentioned in the news or in school. For example, when we talk about the Revolutionary War, we mention England and its role in it. But we also know that it has a monarchy, Big Ben, fish and chips, driving on the left side of the road. We can name one or two things that really stick out. While we know that England exists, we are rarely asked to pinpoint it on a map. Our technology has advanced so incredibly that all physical paper maps are seldom used or picked up. In that regard, the education someone has doesn't matter. People may choose to prioritize their own home, families, and communities. On the other hand, you have the opportunity to expand your view and recognize the beautiful traditions, locations, and people a place has to offer. If you admit that these countries exist and know where they are, you can reach a level of respect between your own country and another's. It's not necessary to know every country's location on a map, but recognizing something outside your own culture shows how we are open to learning about others we are not familiar with. In support of this idea, former executive director of the American Association of Geographers, Douglas Richardson stated, If we don't support geography education, we're going to fall behind in our key U.S.-based geographic technology industries, and then both the U.S. and the rest of the world will get these technologies from somewhere else. Essentially, without geography, our society, economy, and trade will all fall behind. We will go backwards in our learning and teaching methods. Stack the countries will have no purpose simply becoming a distant memory of all the things I started learning almost 10 years ago. However, there are people who believe that where they live and what they have is enough. They might not feel the need to see or explore anything else because it is out of their scope. Or there are parts of the world they may choose to ignore and call them an other, something that we place in the back of our minds that is brought to the surface once in a blue moon. We may know those less discussed countries exist, but they are not something that we need to pay attention to in our everyday lives. We also need to consider distance. Things that are further from where we are may mean that they are less important, therefore no need to care about it. Our own acceptance of foreign cultures is reflected in the choices we make. Looking back, I realize that the opportunity to learn geography in such a visual way was just mesmerizing. Our world has a total of 193 countries. You can imagine how much time I was spending and how many new facts I had gained from this app. 
I must say that because of this game, geography became one of my strong suits and still is to this day. Some may argue, why do we need to pay attention to geography? They could say, I have the internet. I have books. I don't need to memorize anything. The best way I can explain it is that our development depends on it. Centuries ago, many famous explorers traveled the world in search of what or who else was out there. Today's modern countries were made for us to be discovered, studied, written about. Past explorers were able to create today's modern maps, labeled with bodies of water and enormous continents. They wanted to find what was out there, even though many of them were not for the right reasons. What would our world look like if Marco Polo had not discovered the Silk Road and developed world trade with spices, fabrics, and animals? We would not be able to progress the way we do today, in the 21st century. I will admit that I look up a map of the world online once in a while. Aside from staring at a screen, all of the places I've traveled to have become powerful memories. Powerful memories of the locations I've visited and what I plan to do the next time I go. When I went to England for the first time with my family in April 2019, I remember feeling on top of the world on the London Eye. My dad was scared to stand up and look around, but I was able to convince him to observe the city below him. Next time I go, I want to see Big Ben up close. All of the things I've learned from Stack the Countries prove that you truly become a citizen of the world when you absorb any new information you stumble upon. Oftentimes, people choose not to look outside of their bubble because they are so focused on what is happening in their own lives. But when you take the opportunity to pop that bubble and really look around you, you will see and do so many incredible things. You embark on a journey to discover how all people and places are deeply intertwined with one another. I give Stack the Countries five stars. We asked Naomi to play GeoGuessr the day this piece came out. She swept the floor with us all. Now here's Ben Coolish. Human growth hormone. It sort of sounds like a magical potion. Or maybe it's more like a Marvel comic premise. A few drops from the vial and a shrimpy little kid can sprout up and tower over his former bullies. It is a pretty impressive scientific accomplishment, but it's not quite as magic as you might think. Creating modern synthetic human growth hormone, or HGH, does sound almost like science fiction. All humans naturally produce growth hormone, which signals the body to grow, hence the name. To make synthetic growth hormone, scientists are able to isolate the human genes that code for the hormone and insert them into bacterial DNA. Then, the genetically modified bacteria can create a bottomless supply of growth hormone that's safe for people to use. But growth hormone's effects might be a little underwhelming for a comic book fan. The average synthetic HGH user and expect to grow an additional three inches at most. So most people who get on the drug won't exactly end up tall. Most HGH users are short kids, particularly 
those with deficiencies of naturally occurring growth hormone. But for many, the image that comes to mind first is that of doped up athletes with obscenely large muscles. For fully grown athletes, taking growth hormone can increase muscle mass and decrease fat. A perfect combination for improving athletic performance. It just comes with a lot of risk and ethical concerns. And with these questionable ethics, the inevitable scandals. Throughout the years, scandals involving pro athletes have given the drug bad name. Athletes in pretty much every sport have abused growth hormone to give themselves a leg up. As a football player, taking HGH means you can run faster and tackle with more force. A baseball player can hit harder and farther. It's an unnatural advantage. These incidents are the only times that most people will hear of the drug. It makes sense then, people will associate HGH with cheating. And that perception extends beyond its use as a performance enhancing drug. As a 10 year old, I knew that even though I had every right to use the drug, my friends would think I was quote unquote, cheating on my growth. I internalized this. As I started to grow more, I thought to myself, this isn't real, it's because of the meds. To avoid what I saw as inevitable teasing, I tried to keep my mouth shut about my growth hormone. I almost let it slip in fifth grade, just after I got on the drug. I was sitting in the lunchroom between the microwave and the giant portrait of a chicken leg. My friend had just shared his great fear of needles. The little instigator I was, I tried to flex my non-existent bravery, though I didn't really think things through. I actually give myself a shot every night, I boasted. For growth hormone? No, I panicked for allergies. After this humbling interaction, I kept my growth hormone use under wraps, without exception. There wasn't any overlap between my school life and my growth hormone life. That says a lot about my relationship with the drug, but school's not really where this story unfolded. At sleepaway camp, I went to the health center every night to take my growth hormone shot. There, no one could hide they were cheating on their growth. Nevertheless, I was surprised at how many fellow cheaters flooded to the health center. Now that we weren't shielded by the privacy of home, we could see just how many people used the drug. It was normal. It wasn't something to be ashamed of. I quickly learned that other HGH users would feel an affinity towards me just by seeing me give myself the shot. It's incredible to feel embraced for something you tend to hate about yourself, to even make friends because of it. You almost forget that it's usually a secret. But then again, if it weren't a secret during the rest of the year, this little community wouldn't exist. When you spend 10 months of the year ashamed of something, you begin to cherish those two months where you don't. camaraderie I felt in that health center is hard to replicate. It was a unique type of friendship. Let me show you what it looked like. At any point past 9 p.m., a line of at least five people sat chatting on a bench in the health center, typically each with a needle in their thigh. We joked with each other and the nurses, even gave us special ginger ale Fridays, sipping ginger ale 
and adjusting our pens to the correct dosage, it was easy to forget the topic we were bonded around, something we hid at home. There's more to HGH, though, because at the end of the day, this is a drug, and it is an Advil. In contrast with the positive associations I formed around HGH while at camp, there are some genuine medical risks to taking the drug. If your doctor prescribes too high a dose, users can experience strange growth patterns. There is a low risk of developing acromegaly, which causes unusual growth in the hands, feet, and face, as well as diabetes and even heart disease. Because it's an injection, one could also form blood clots. These issues are rare, but present. The more common issues are more surface level, rather than medical. I couldn't help but notice that some of my friends on growth hormone seemed abnormally strong, or that their limbs seemed a little disproportionate to the rest of their body. I always wondered if those people regretted using the drug, or did the allure of being tall outweigh the negatives of a misshapen body? There's also the argument that using growth hormone is unnecessary, and promotes the idea that shortness is a bad thing, unattractive and undesirable. In some instances, the drug is used in people starting puberty extremely early. Without the drug, they might finish growing before they even turn 10, and their height would put them at a genuine disadvantage. But there are a lot more cases where it's used for people like me. That is, people who are very short, who have growth hormone deficiencies, but no medical need for HGH. For me, getting on the drug was purely superficial. Now, I wonder if it was really necessary. I remember the exact moment my family and I decided to consider HGH. I was nine and crawled into my parents' bed in the middle of the night, a pretty common occurrence. As I pretended to sleep, I inadvertently heard their conversation. His new height prediction is 5'4 to 5'7. I heard my mom whisper. Dr. Nardi is talking about some tests to see his growth hormone level. My dad replied. At that point, I cut the act and leapt up in tears. I was crying because I wouldn't be tall. Thinking about it now, it seems so wrong that a nine-year-old was so conditioned to value height that he'd sob at the possibility of being below average. What is it that made me cry? Was it phrases like, tall, dark, and handsome, that tell children that height is one of the most important parts of being attractive? Is it the classic Hollywood bully scenes where the big guy picks on his classmates for being short? Is it the world's fascination with the tallest basketball players? Whatever it is, I just wanted to be tall, or at least a little bit taller. And there was a the guilt that came with cheating the guilt that made me take my meds hours before the time I was supposed to to prepare for sleepovers with my closest friends. But looking back, I still remember sitting on that health center bench and smiling. After years away from camp, I know that if I ran into any of my fellow HGH users, I'd be happy to stop and talk. I'm not sure if the community itself was all that special, but when you spend 10 months of the year ashamed of something, 
begin to cherish those two months where you don't. Ben Coolish, graduating senior, continues to have laughs with his camp friends every now and then. We all wish him well as he goes off to college. Now, this is Jack Ramsey. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines procrastination as to put off intentionally and habitually. I can shamefully say that habitually, I have intentionally put off my work for as long as I can remember. We as humans are interesting creatures. We form many different habits within our lifetime. People think that it takes 21 days to build a habit, but this is proven to be false. Studies show that it takes two to three months to form a strong habit. In my case, this habit is seemingly unbreakable. It's easier said than done just to start working when you get home. Just like every other student, as soon as I get home, I set my bag down and try to distract myself from the schoolwork that has followed me to my house. Sundays are the most dreaded day of the week, but there's something special about them. While dealing with the fact that we need to go back to school the next day, I also begin working on the mountain of work that I have brought home from Friday. My family is like a traveling circus. With six people in the family, you never know what's going to happen. Sadly, we're not all in the same place very often. My sister is in her sophomore year of college, so that means she has successfully escaped the chaos. Even though we are technically not all together, we always manage to have dinner together on Sundays. One thing that everyone in my family has in common is that we are very busy people. Hockey practice, lacrosse practice, schoolwork, tournaments, working out, and business trips make up a few reasons why our time spent together is so minimal. Because we are so busy, every Sunday we all share dinner together. The reason this is so special is because it makes time feel slower. Our busy days fly past us while we sit in the moment of joy together. With all the activity going on in my life, it has become easy to fall into the trap of procrastination. A procrastinator's goal is to reap the benefits of the short-term relief, despite the fact that the long-term stress is inevitable. About 20% of adults procrastinate chronically. Studies have shown that procrastination is linked to depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, and ADHD. Personally, I think my habitual putting off is linked to anxiety. One would think that school would raise my anxiety level, but this is wrong. There's so much going on during the school day that my brain can't even focus on anything else. I'm distracted. Sunday dinners are my favorite distractions. I get to eat great food and spend time with my family. But there can be some awkward moments. Sitting down in a civil manner after throwing your brother across the room is problematic to say the least. Initially, dinner is always very quiet. We start with the small things such as how was your work or, or how was school? And it's always the same answer. Good. After that defeating answer, it's well, what did you do today? Which is a totally different question. And each of us goes into a monologue about our day and looking at it now, 
I have no idea how, despite such a boring topic, we always manage to break into laughter. After that point, everything becomes smooth and calming. No more fighting and no more arguing. My favorite thing to do in my free time is nothing. Every once in a while, I'll have a free afternoon, home at three o'clock, no distractions. But somehow, I'm still not productive in the slightest. Without the time restrictions of a late night practice, there's no pressure at all to finish my work. Seven hours of free time after school creates a void that leaves me unfocused and unmotivated to get anything done. I have so much time, I do it now. Saving my work snowball effects and turns into me doing it in the last hours of the day. Throughout our relaxing Sunday dinner, there is one piercing thought in the back of my mind, reminding me of the ominous amount of work that I have saved for myself to complete in an insurmountable amount of time. I am the person in my family that has no idea what is going on. Whenever we have plans, I'm the last to know about it, despite having a family calendar with every event written on it. It's also electronic, so I even have it on my phone but I don't check it regularly, so if it gets updated, I don't know about it. And I like to have a heads up or a warning before anything happens. I like to plan out my day. The one thing that I can count on, though, is Sunday dinners. We have built such a habit by eating dinner together every Sunday that me, the one who doesn't know what's going on, knows about it before it even happens. Dinner starts out very relaxing sharing stories about our day, and enjoying the food my mom makes. As dinner progresses, I slowly have to hide my true feelings of despair as the realization of work hits. Time goes back to normal. We always finish dinner with my mom asking, who still has work? My brothers mistakenly answer yes, and they get scolded for not doing it sooner. I put on my charming voice and answer no, and list out all the work I still need to finish. I give procrastination zero stars. That was Jack Ramsey. When asked to do a follow-up interview on this subject, he did procrastinate from accepting it, though, ironically, it was so he could study for his finals. Today's episode was narrated and written by Ben Coolish, Naomi Azaloy, and Jack Ramsey. Today's episode was produced by Stevie George Kakis, Rel Jimenez, Donya Dami, and Covid Odward. Music given to us by Blue Dot Sessions.